Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. ABTV buddies, thanks for tuning in. This week, I've got Katie Hannigan, who is a stand-up comic and an actor. She has been on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She's been on Comedy Central, Just for Last New Faces, Travel Channel, and MTV. You can find her at the New York Comedy Club, Stand Up New York, West Side Comedy Club, and Caroline's when you're in the Big Apple. She's also got an album coming out this week on the 18th called Feeling of Emptiness. I got to listen to it. It's fantastic. Make sure that you get on there and pre-order it. She's also got a great podcast called Lady Journey with her co-host, Sarah Tolomash. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Anyway, it's called Lady Journey. Check out the show notes for her website, the Lady Journey podcast, and the blog articles that come with it, and a pre-order for Katie's new album, Feeling of Emptiness. Enjoy the interview. It's a really good one. It's Katie Hannigan. Katie. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. I was fortunate enough to get an uh, advanced copy of your uh, new album. It's called uh, Feeling of Emptiness, right? Yes, it is. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I got to tell you, I listened to it a couple times through, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I hope you take this as a compliment. But what I really enjoyed was the fact that you took, like, your own personal ideas and your new ideas and your your just whole millennial self and did kind of a traditional stand-up set out of it. And I thought that was really good because you did you did all the stuff. You had one-liners, you had Mister X, you had stories, and it was just like it was like listening to an old-timey comic doing new stuff. And I hope you take that as a compliment because I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you. Well, I am inspired by classic stand-up comedians and the stand-up. I guess it, I wouldn't even really call it classic, but more of the stand-up of the 80s and 90s so that's the type of stand-up that inspires me and um i also find that it's just the type of stand-up that gets the most laughs yeah i think you know there's lots of different styles and now that i have done that album i'm interested to you know maybe try out some different ones but Mm -hmm. but yeah i was i was really happy with how it came out so thank you yeah i really i really liked it i guess my favorite my favorite joke was the weighted blanket one and uh oh, thank you. yeah I, I actually use a weighted blanket so it I, it really struck <laughs> struck a chord with me and i just don't think mine's heavy enough i think i need more poundage 
I think mine's too heavy. I think mine is too heavy because I, I barely can get it out of the little cubby hole that we keep it yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. I can it. I, I would actually like mine so heavy that I need help getting out of bed. If, if, that, <laughs> if that could happen, I think it would be yeah. right there where I need it. I think you're looking for a coffin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> thinking about this album, you've got – and I listened to a couple of your uh, podcasts. You got a great uh, podcast called the Lady Journey Podcast, and yes, I listened to a couple episodes of that. And what I'm gathering from that, you've been doing comedy for about 12, 13 years. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It'll be. Um, it's been 12 years. I started okay. in 2010. I started right on Valentine's Day. I decided, you know, that's a big a me thing to do. Go uh -huh. to my first open mic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what was that open mic like? You know, it was it was interesting. A lot of different things happened for me. First of all, the person I went to see at the open mic, my friend who had invited me to come along with him, I had met him at a, a, an acting project, he bombed really, really badly. So I was... I was just taken aback at how badly he did. So that was, it was scary and jarring. Uh -huh. But I also, I, you know, I tried, I tried my jokes for the first time and I thought, okay, I, I think I have an intuitive sense of how to do this, even though I don't know, I want to dig into it. And, you know, this kind of like sense of like mystery and like, um, you know, I, you have that joy of like putting a puzzle together. That was kind of like activated in me. And then at the same time, I also saw some other comedians who I found were just breathtakingly funny, inventive. And um, there are people who today are really, really successful. And I saw them all at that very first open mic. And I thought, you know, I went to a, a theater school. And I thought, I want to get in on the ground floor of something that's really cool. You know, I was into experimental theater and, you know, the downtown scene. And, and I was just kind of looking for that little place I could get my foot in the door of, you know, where I could really see myself going far in a career. And, I, and a light bulb went off. And I thought, okay, this is it here. Something mm. really exciting and neat is happening here. And... From there, when did you f decide that, okay, this is going to be something I'm going to do? This is going to be my vocation of choice now? Oh, it was right away. It was, was pretty it? much right away, yeah, because I had moved to New York City pursuing acting. So I was mm. working in uh, an experimental theater, the Ontological Hysteric Theater, um, which is a, a well-known experimental theater from the 70s. It's now defunct. But I was working in that theater. I was performing with a theater company. I was doing a lot of auditions. And uh, unfortunately, because I really didn't have any connections when I moved to New York, you know, every audition I was able to get was something, you know, awful. Like the haunted house, the local haunted house, and like yeah. the abandoned warehouse, or like student films and it was just the roles were misogynistic and bad and I thought you know I've always really wanted to be a performer it's just been kind of a passion I've had my whole life so I thought okay I think there's something's not fitting together here that I need to sidestep and and after I went to that first open mic I thought okay this is this is um a medium where I can have autonomy over how I'm portrayed over what I'm saying and I can I can perform as much as I want. Mm -hmm. If I could see, I can, oh, people go to open mics every single night. That was all I wanted to do. It's really all I've ever wanted to do. It's mm -hmm. a bit of an impression. So. How, did, so thought, 
how did your comedy and your act progress from year one up to year 12 when you're recording this album? Ooh, that's such an interesting question. I think I it's hard to say, but I think in those first, probably the first three to four years, I didn't really understand the structure of comedy. You know, it, it I was just kind of, and I and I do this in a way, I think it's part of the creative process, but just kind of throwing shit at the wall, throwing it, throwing it, trying to, hoping to land on something. And then about year four, I, and I was reading a lot of different books, how-to books on comedy. Some made sense. Some were just um, baffling to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't understand the fundamental building blocks internally until about that third or fourth year. And then once I started to understand it and, and I internalized it, then it became, uh, you know, informed my work more. And my, in those early years, I was doing like a lot of voices. I was doing like a lot of, you know, just kind of seeing something funny that happened and then trying to kind of recreate it, which didn't ever really seem to work to me until I was able to. And then once I kind of harnessed those fundamentals, they really became my like building blocks that I would always go back to. And then I think probably, you know, maybe a little bit later than that, around year six or seven, I, I started kind of being able to um, use those fundamentals of comedy in a more organic way where, you know, I would do a lot of writing exercises and maybe never not get anything. Mm -hmm. And then later something would kind of come out from my subconscious, you know, so I have had these like magical experiences of just having a joke come to me mm -hmm. so, and I think that's you know closer to what what happens to me now do you have particular times and events when jokes come to you well I'm very I'm very rigid <laughs> I'm a very rigid person so I usually write about at least one to two hours a day in the morning so in the first hour of the morning I'll get some good jokes I'll get some of those um then later in the shower, maybe, or during a workout, I'll get something will kind of come to me. And then the other times will be just hanging around with friends, you know, goofing mm. around with friends. And those are usually where I get my most brilliant ideas because you have, um, you know, you have a, a already like a little bit of built-in feedback when you say something and somebody laughs at it. It almost gives you the confidence that you need to, to turn it into something. Mm. Do you... And I, I'm not as rigid as you. As a matter of fact, I'm not rigid at all. I, and <laughs> but my my premises come to me. It's almost always the same thing. I'm driving, or mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to go to sleep. And mm -hmm. if if at my age, if I don't write them down or put them in my phone or something like that, they're just gone. So I have yeah. to. I, I can't tell you how many times I pull off to the side of the road and put my premise down so I wouldn't forget it. And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten up out of bed and and put my premise in the phone so I wouldn't wake my wife up. And uh, <laughs> so yeah, I yeah, I it's funny. I talked to I talk you're like probably my hundred and fourth, hundred and fifth interview. And it's almost split down the middle. There's the there's the ones who make it a habit, okay, I'm gonna write X amount of hours every day and take the good stuff from that and work with it and there's folks that work it out on stage and there's also folks that just are, are like me and it just comes to them and they write whenever they feel like it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you in your comedy community 
<coughs> in in your uh, comedy friends, do you have different types of people like that that are, that write differently? And how yeah, how do you get inspiration from people who do it different than you? Well, I think, I mean, me personally, I am always, I'm very type A, you know, so for me, it's actually really helpful to hang out with somebody and joke around somebody who is going a little bit at a more relaxed pace, you know, maybe somebody who's a little bit more in touch with their intuition. I think that's something that I could definitely benefit from. And I am trying to benefit from, I think like in New York City, the culture is very like grinding, working, grinding, working. And certainly in the open mic scene, which is where I was kind of starting out, it was all about getting up as much as you can, writing as many new jokes as you can, never, you know, never doing the same joke you know, so many times at a show and, and having that kind of high turnover rate. And so I think um, for me, it's actually better to hang out with somebody that's a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more in touch with their own intuition. And that's where I'm trying to go mm. as an artist. And instead of feeling like I have to write every single day because that's what I do and mm. that's how I get through the morning without spiraling yeah. mentally. You know, <laughs> I have to do this, you know, instead of instead being like, you know, maybe I can tap into myself and think like, what do I really need to do today? Maybe I need to go for a walk or, you know, and that's so for me, hanging out with somebody that's has a way less structure is actually much more helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It helps even you out a little bit. Yeah. How did the Colbert appearance come about? Oh, you know, it was um, it was a really actually very, I think, typical magical comedy story where I was just performing around town. I was really working on a tight set that I was hoping to use for my um, JFL audition. And I was just um, I was scouted. I was at the at a club where a friend of mine, he happened to be running his Colbert set. And the booker was there and she was there to watch him, but I went on first and she saw me and it just, it just went uh, immediately from you send in the tape. I had wor been working on another tape that I had had ready for submission uh -huh. and it was just that serendipity of being in the right place at the right time and having the right level of preparation that I sent the tape. I met her for coffee and she said, okay, good to go. And then it was just, wow out from there so so it's you know it's important to remind yourself that things like that can happen as, as i am now four years later <laughs> and you know, waiting for my next big special thing yeah it's the old adage the harder you work the luckier you get and uh I, i've used that one a lot now i watched i watched that performance it's on uh youtube and i watched that and i was uh I had listened to your album first and I, I didn't even really know what you look like. And when I saw you up there, I thought you did such a great job of your performance was great. It was, you used the body language and, and your used your hands and uh, you know, talking about the glasses and things like that. And you really um, the, the performance part was good enough that i mean you got a couple of really nice applause breaks on that yeah thank you thank yeah. you and that and that was the first time i heard weighted blanket too and that was, <laughs> <laughs> and i i got a you know the social commentary about the health care and the um uh the chicken soup with the uh 
low-grade chicken uh, so you can get the antibiotics out of it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was really happy with the I was happy with the performance of it. Although I think sometimes when you're in a bigger space, you have to really slow down the way that you talk, mm. and it's really tricky to like maintain an organic memento momentum when you mm -hmm. do that. Um, so I think that's why I think one reason why I do prefer a, like a smaller space where you can go a little bit faster and you can kind of feed off of that, mm -hmm. the speed and the energy, although it is something I have a challenge of, like, I love to just speak really fast and just, you know, be feeling that energy. Like I'm jogging along and yeah. then I'll listen to the tape. I'm like, Oh my God, I speeding, I'm speeding yeah. so badly. <laughs> Well, I, I, I thought it, it it didn't look like you were speed. I just thought it was a really, really good performance. And I think the audience really, really liked it. And uh, oh, thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, I, was, I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Now, one of the things and I talk to a lot of comedians that are getting ready to put out an album, whether it's their first or their fifth. And uh, you're actually self-producing your album. And I kind of I wanted you to take me through what that first of all what the benefits of self-producing are and also what kind of behind the scenes work you have to do in order to get it done sure sure well I mean I chose to self-produce because um you know it for me it's just worth it to put in this extra administrative work to get the financial benefit of not having, you know, I do, I do think it is, it is a little wild that it's such a huge chunk, you know, that the labels will take from the artists, something like, you know, it's 50% to begin with if they're producing it, you know, mm -hmm. when it goes on the air mm -hmm. and then a, a, another maybe 50% of the artist chunk as well. So it, it's a lot that goes to the labels from what I understand. And I had a little insight after the pandemic. I, I have like a little insight where uh, several different labels asked me if I was doing an album independently. So it was like at the same time, four different labels asked me. And I just thought to myself, if, if so many people are willing to produce my album right now out of nowhere, they must be able to make, they must think that this is an easy way for them to make money. Mm -hmm. So if it's an easy way for them to make money, it's there's no reason that I can't just do it and make the money myself. It kind of reminds um, me of a uh, if you're putting your house up for sale by owner, a realtor coming and saying, I can get you more money if if I sell it. Right. And <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily think that's true in my case, because yeah. I've been doing stand up in New York for 12 years. Uh -huh. I perform all over the country. I have a lot of unique relationships that, you know, I'm looking at some of these labels that have been, you know, it's like a, if a label hasn't even been around for 12 years, like maybe they don't even have the relationships that I have. Right. And I'm very lucky also because my boyfriend is a, a stand-up comedian also, and he is, um, he gave me the advice as well of, I think you should self-produce. I'm, I'm willing to help you, you know, if you need any kind of counseling or advice about it. And, uh, and so just from him giving me that advice and talking to some other comedians that I know, giving me the same advice, I thought, you know what, I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it myself. And I'm pretty good at learning to do things. So I think, um, you know, it's it, what, 
like if I was paying myself $25 an hour to do this extra work, it's just like having a day job, isn't right. it? Which I need anyway. So, right. So what are the nuts and bolts of it? Cause you've, uh, you've got a finished product that I heard and it's coming out on March 18th. And, yes. uh, and so what, I know you record it and you usually do a couple sets so that you take the best out of two sets. And so where do you find somebody to do a, a quality recording? Um, who, who's, how do you get somebody to do your graphics, your, your art and stuff like that? And then how do you get it distributed when you do it yourself? Okay, so there is a club here in New York where I live. It's called New York Comedy Club, and they have sound recording equipment. So I was I was able to buy out the club and buy out the recording from them. Uh-huh. So I used my own budget for that. I sold a lot of tickets to the show, and it helped offset the uh-huh. cost of it. So I haven't done a, a show in New York in, like, I mean, it's been at least since before the pandemic. Uh-huh. It may be, like, three or four years. So I had a few, like – a few people that, you know, you meet people and they're like, I'd love to come to the show. And it's like, well, now I'm calling that person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imposing myself on them. Right. Come to my performance. So I, so setting up the show was a huge, a huge effort. Um, I got the recording from the, they have a whole setup in the club. They have a recordist. He handled everything. He gives it to me. Then I got an editor, again, through friends. I got an editor, paid the editor. Meanwhile, I'm also doing video. The art I had, the art was an old photo that I had done before the pandemic, which I had never released. So, you know, I'm always doing, like, photos, you know, at least once a year, just getting headshots updated and doing, like, comedy portraits and stuff. So I just used an old photo just for the sake of my own budget. Mm -hmm. I made the cover art myself on a website called Canva. Okay. typed it in yeah and then um i uploaded it to cd baby which is like an option for you know they're really more geared for independent musicians Mm -hmm. but um i uploaded it through that website so they actually take care of all of the distributing they distribute it to any streaming platform um itunes all of that so that was actually pretty easy that was pretty easy and then i just submitted it via myself to Sirius XM. So hopefully it'll get on the radio. And I did hire a publicist. That was my main big expense was hiring the publicist. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to do that because I am working more now than I was when I started. And I think it's even worth it for me to pay like, you know, even a medium sized publishing budget, a one time payout than Mm -hmm. to have you know, a lot of the labels will offer to take care of that for you, but you're, you owe them, you know, you're giving them money until forever. Mm-hmm. So I just said, oh, you know what, I'll pay, I'll pay it out of my own pocket, whatever. And then the, my other big expense was having, I paid for the club to record me and then I'm paying for video editing. And so I'll be using my little clips, but yeah, right. I mean, that's basically, that was basically it. And I have to say, like, I am not that smart of a person, but like, I do my own taxes every year and yeah. I kind of have a thing where like, I just like click through, I'm just like, okay, you know, hoping for the best, hoping for the best. And I think like, that's just, if I was more type A than I am, it would be impossible for me to do this because it has been confusing, at, like various stages. 
but I just have been operating under the assumption that someone will tell me if I'm doing something really wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here, here we are, I'm about to release it. So hopefully everything is fine. Yeah. That's great. It's funny you mentioned CD Baby because I found this group years, years and years ago that they weren't on any streaming platforms because I think the only streaming platform was Napster where you were stealing music. And Mm -hmm. um, I really liked them. And the only place I could get their CDs was CD Baby. And Mm -hmm. uh, now now they're on some of the streaming platforms. I uh, stay away from Spotify because they don't pay people and they ripped off a bunch of comedians. So I listen yeah. to them on uh what's it called title titles the one i listen to so oh, nice. Spotify doesn't nice. get any more of my money um you know you really touched on something as far as what it takes oh i wanted to mention your publicist too because sh- you got a good one she's smart enough to recognize that uh to seize on an opportunity because i contacted her about somebody else and she gave me you and alex hooper and uh you know i I wouldn't have even thought to approach you if I hadn't seen if I hadn't seen you before. And I I just she's doing a good job because some publicists just totally blow me off. They're like, he's not interested. She's not interested or they don't even return my email. And guess what? You know, podcasts do help. And uh, so you got a smart one. Good. Good. Well, she came highly recommended and I, I have been totally blown away by her she's she's excellent yeah yeah she's doing a great job Uh, but one of the things you you um brought up is okay you know stand-up comedy is your vocation now and you've got a work ethic that you do but there's also the the money you take in and the expenses so you talked about the expenses of getting headshots every year uh you've got the expenses of self-producing this album which will hopefully reap the benefits of you know if when you uh get on serious the you get all of the i think three dollars and 62 cents per play instead of half of it so you know yeah, hopefully you get, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you get that back so um how do you um balance the books at the end of the year and feel like you're moving forward i am not smart with finances okay i don't know what i'm doing i try not to spend that much money i try to really keep my overhead low until until pretty recently i was living i think on a thousand dollars a month Mm -hmm. so i mean i just really try to keep my overhead low i don't have a special comedy account i have been really lucky over the years that i've made large amounts of money uh, for small projects that I've just put into, you know, my IRAs, my mutual funds. So I'd say like probably only these big chunks of money move me forward and everything else is just, you know, if it's over my, over my, um, my monthly expenses, then I'm like, okay, this is just, this is just money for me to get a facial or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I know I wish I could be more meticulous with my financial records. I've always tried to be like one of those people that's like money coming in, money going out, but I just don't and I can't. I think I just can't. So um, I don't know how to answer that. I guess um, I feel like I'm moving forward in terms of I can see which work I'm booking that's paying me. So right mm-hmm. now I mostly make money from 
doing road work and from doing spots around town, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, so basically my road work that I do pays for my living expenses. Okay. And then everything I get over that, I just spend it. Mm. <laughs> you sound a lot like me. Um, <laughs> I want to switch gears a little bit because I'm uh, I, I'm going to talk to uh, Tammy Pescatelli. Have you ever heard of uh, Tammy? Yes, uh, I think I worked with her before. Okay. I think I've met her. I met her right after um, I remember she was something terrible happened to her because someone threw a glass of wine at her head at a show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And I think I worked with her right after that happened. Yeah, I she, gets, uh, she gets some strong reactions sometimes, but I, <laughs> she, I, I, I'm a big fan, but I'm starting to watch, uh, it's it's called the, um, uh, what is it, the Funny Ladies of Comedy or something like that. It, it's a Showtime show, and uh, there's two or a certain age. Yeah, there you go. And um, I, it's funny. I just watched it last night, and I'm listening to some of the horror stories that they went through being a woman in comedy. And you know, Tammy mentioned that she was sharing a condo with a rapist for uh, like ten days, Ooh, and oh she and she didn't she couldn't do anything else because she had to get paid. And um, right. you know, I just hear all the things that have happened through the years and then things are supposed to be better now and yet i talk to a lot of uh female comedians that say uh in some ways it is in some ways it isn't so how is it for you well i've definitely had my share of stories of you know um creepy behavior and rapey behavior but i it's hard to say now because i think i think that I'm at a level in my career where a lot of people know me or at least know my boyfriend. So I'm a little bit shielded from that, which, you know, is absolutely misogynistic, you know, that somebody isn't going to come on to me because they know my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think, I think, um, it's definitely better than it was it seems for me when I started comedy I think as you kind of move up you know comedy is such an entry-level thing where anybody can do it especially in New York especially around when I started 2010 it was the big comedy bubble where everybody was going to UCB and going to the open mics and it would just be like you know three women I would go to these open mics with like three women and it would just be like tons of guys and you know there was definitely some sometimes where I was like, wow, these, this is not, whatever is happening here is not safe. But, but even recently, I mean, when I go on the road a lot, I do get talked down to by like, you know, it's, it, it, I think in other places outside of New York where people do comedy a little more casually, um, there's more room for bad behavior to kind of like slip through the cracks. Oh yeah. And I think here it kind of, I think here it's like, you don't really get to move up to doing um, good paid work unless you have uh, social support. Yeah. And I don't think people really openly tolerate people that they've heard bad stories about. But I did have a situation, actually, this is this has to do with my album recording. I was at the Comedy Cellar, and there was a guy who came into my private conversation I was having with another comedian. He, he didn't work at the Cellar. He later said he was a comedian from, I don't know, some some other state. He had been, you know, he was coming, sitting at the table with us, uninvited, and really imposing himself and 
giving coaching me that I was going to do great on the album recording. And I just felt like, you know, as a woman, I just feel terrified to confront anybody because I've had times where, you know, like an audience member, like after the show was heckling, tried to hug me. I said, no, followed me, followed me down the street, you know, so I never confront anybody. Um, but he was he was really like imposing himself you know going on and on and and then he was asked to leave and he acted like I was supposed to say oh no oh no stay I know him which I don't I was grateful that he was asked to leave because he was being really obnoxious yeah. and then he went on my Instagram account and <laughs> harassing me I posted something it's my big moment tomorrow I'm recording my album harassing me through the comments tagging my boyfriend tagging the comedy seller and I just thought you know it that's that's something I don't think that a lot of male comedians put up with because I think if I was a man I don't think this other guy would have felt um felt the need to connect with me in a way that was like putting himself on a higher power level yeah. than me you know what I mean? Like coming yeah. to me from like a place of like, oh, you're going to be okay. And I know because I'm so much more experienced. I was like, I, there's no way that you have anywhere near the experience that I have. Mm -hmm. You're acting like this in a way that's like very green and totally inappropriate. But so I think, but you know, on the other hand, I do think um, male comedians do deal with psychosis from fans in a different form. <laughs> oh, so, can you elaborate on that? Well, I think I've talked with my boyfriend about it. And he said, you know, he has he's had women come up to him after the show and, you know, kind of get confrontational to him in a way where, you know, it, there, maybe there is like a perceived um, power dynamic and they felt that they needed to, you know, have the upper hand. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Does that make sense? Nothing specific is coming to mind, but yeah. but that's one of the that's one of the. Um, you know, I guess challenges I've had as a female comedian or one of the specific um, experiences that I have. I've definitely had many other situations where I've felt in an unsafe work environment, mm -hmm. but not in the last five years. Yeah, yeah. Not since I did, you know, not since I've had like a lot of more professional accomplishments, I would say. Right. Do you still feel the or do you feel that it's more of a level playing field as far as um, being a meritocracy and just being funny is good enough and you don't need to fill so many man slots and so many women slots? Um, no, I don't. I think that politics plays a huge role in comedy still. Um, I, I don't think it's a meritocracy at okay. all, but I do think that um, I think women are, I don't think there's a debate about whether women are funny or not mm -hmm. as there was when I started in 2010. I remember mm -hmm. it was like constantly being debated. Mm -hmm. So one of the, that, oh, sorry, go ahead. One of the conversations I've had with a few comedians is that, um, the audience dynamic has changed a lot in especially the time that, from when you started in, in the last 10 or 12 years. And that sometimes you can have three generations of people 
sitting at a table. You can have grandma and grandpa, and you can have mom and dad, and the grown kids all at the same table. Do you do you feel like the audiences that you're playing to are um, first of all diverse and a, a lot of different uh, folks represented, age groups and uh, cultures and stuff like that? And how do you change or, or how do you massage your act to make uh, as many people in the room laugh as you can. Well, I do find that my, you know, shows are pretty diverse usually. And, and also because I perform in different places in the country, I am exposed to, you know, for example, casinos where people sometimes often older or, um, you know, I love to go to, like I was in Seattle last weekend. And then at the end of this month, I'll, you know, Seattle's very, um, liberal smart and fun you know mm -hmm. those are usually the metrics that i like to categorize the audience for example in a month from now i'm going to um lawrenceville georgia which is outside of atlanta and i would mm -hmm. say they are fun uh the liberal they're not very liberal at all no. um and maybe a little smart you know yeah well so i think i i don't really adjust my performance i do filthy material on a late show and I do cleaner material on an early show, but mm. I'm, I think I'm lucky in a way because um, I'm very uh, likable and non-threatening. So I think I'm a type of person that I naturally can go into a situation where it's mo like mostly elderly people. They like me mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe a, a, a more liberal audience um, also likes me too. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't usually, have trouble that's that that's good i um it's funny you mentioned uh uh lawrence is it lawrenceburg or lawrenceville lawrenceville, lawrenceville. Mm -hmm. so i'm in huntsville alabama now i come from the north in indiana and not too far from atlanta about two three hours or something like that and mm -hmm. uh it, it's it's been a little bit of a culture shock to me coming south uh being my northern liberal self and it's because Huntsville is it's pretty diverse and a lot of people are transplants and because they've got all the aerospace stuff and NASA and uh, all the military stuff too so you've got a lot of people not from around here and then there's the folks that are from around here and man it's it's you know it's it's hardcore uh, Bible Belt stuff and a lot different Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, you know, one of the things that I did when I was, um, you know, coming up in New York City was that I would do a lot of check spots. You know, I would do a lot of shows where I was just really focusing on my own survival and just getting a few laughs here and there. And I think that my material evolved to be, you know, I do have a lot of one liners mm -hmm. and I have a lot of jokes that are very punchy. And I think, you know, those jokes usually work in like a range of more difficult settings right right yeah and i i like how you mix it up i told you at the beginning how, how you mix it up with the one-liners and the you know two-liner misdirects and things like that and then you can put a story about your boyfriend and and mm -hmm. it still it still has the same punch so you do a really good job of mixing that thank you now you mentioned that you you take your cue from uh, being a fan of 80s and 90s comics. Which which of the comics really um, stood out to you to um, give you the, um, 
whatever it takes, the gumption to, to um, get into comedy? Well, I was, <clears throat> I didn't really get into comedy as a comedy fan. I watched a lot of comedy in the 90s, the mm. late 90s, um, when I was home from school in the summer. So I would watch Comedy Central Premium Blend, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I would also watch Saturday Night Live. But at that time, I considered myself a serious actor, yeah. somebody <laughs> who wouldn't be getting into stand-up. Although I do remember thinking, I remember kind of, you know, as you do when you're, you know, 11, 12, playing in my bedroom and kind of playing that I'm doing stand-up and mm. thinking I would really have to be so much braver than I am now to, mm. to try to get into it. Um, and then, you know, fast forward 10 years, I was literally running out of options and I just realized I didn't need bravery. I just needed to be desperate. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but some of the, some of my favorite comics from that era, um, I've always loved David Tell. I think he's just so interesting and funny and funny as a person. But at that time, I also loved what, what I would now consider, um, more, not my taste now, but. Margaret Cho, early Margaret Cho, mm -hmm. Paula Poundstone. I was obsessed. Anything Paula Poundstone I just thought was utterly hysterical. Um, Eddie Izzard, who I do still think is very funny, but that his structure is, you know, it's not really something I could model even. Mm. Uh, he's incredible. Um, but stuff I think that's, you know, they were like big personalities and, mm. and you know, it was almost like very babyish, you know. Mm. But now, now my um, some of my favorite comedians from that era. I still love David Tell. I love everything he's done. Um, but Wendy Liebman is someone that I discovered yeah. much later. Who her style had a big influence on me. Her use of misdirection and mm -hmm. her kind of classic stage presence. Yeah, great. Um, so you mentioned that you you know this this album is uh kind of a uh a stopping point of one part of your career and you mentioned thinking about trying to um go in some different directions what what plans do you have after getting the album launched are you just still thinking about getting the album launched well i'm wrapping it up i'm really um just with you know this week and next week i am going to be wrapping it up i really want to um I really want to work from a place that's more flow-based and more intuitive than I have been before. I started to kind of tap into it during the pandemic um, when I had a lot of space and time to make that a priority. And mm -hmm. since then, I've been, you know, kind of rushing around and a, a little bit lost sight of it. But I would like to work from a more organic or more intuitive place. I want to um, maybe go less for shock jokes and more um, more focusing on the humor of the mundane, you know, the day-to-day -day humor of my life. Mm. And, and I definitely want it to still be probably autobiographical, um, but I think I would like to work from a place of instead of feeling like I need to turn over material at a certain rate give myself more of a time to develop it and see what comes from that so i don't know it's a little bit scary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when i'm going off i feel like i'm going you know up to space in a little spaceship or something uh -huh. but i'm trying to be brave enough to you know cut myself loose from that feeling of needing to churn out something just to have it right right when you were uh, coming up and learning the ropes did you uh get any advice that 
from other comics that just changed your life or any advice that was so bad that uh, you, you were sorry you ever listened to it? <laughs> hmm. I don't know that I got advice that often, but I did have a turning point in my um, experience, which I think I touched on it a little bit. It was right around, I think, maybe year three or four where – I was going to open mics. I was doing like three open mics every night. I was working my day job. I was performing a lot and um, really developing my stage presence. But my material was not coming along. It wasn't coming along with me. And I was going on stage and I was feeling great, but I didn't have the you know fundamental skills that I needed to really write a great joke. Mm-hmm. I was kind of spinning my wheels, you know, I felt like I was kind of on this little hamster wheel of like, just going nowhere, going nowhere. And somebody I did have a good conversation with a, an old friend who had said, like, you need to take a break, completely take a break from performing, perform maybe one or two times a week and focus all of your energy on learning, writing, learning, writing, learning what you like, learning how to do it, and then come back after that but you you can't really do both at once mm-hmm. so that was a big turning point for me where I did get to um you know I think like I said there was this um hustle culture in New York where it's like if you're not working every day if we don't see you working then you just you're gone you just fly off the face of the earth you know so it was it was scary for me to kind of go against that but I did take some time away to really focus on internalizing the fundamentals of comedy in a way that I never had before. And it Mm -hmm. definitely elevated my skill level and it elevated. So I was able to kind of um, get to the next level because my material was good. Mm -hmm. That's really good advice for a lot of young people. I see, you know, a lot of younger comics. I see like, I want to get better. I want to get better. But it's like, well, what are you doing to get better? Are you just getting up on stage every night telling the same jokes? Mm -hmm. Because I think the fastest way to be recognized as a good comedian is to have really good jokes. Because even people who are established comics, they're still, they still watch somebody. And if they see them, they have an incredible joke, not something that's like being done and being done, like taking a shower at your girlfriend's place, you know? Mm then I think that's that's the, the fastest way to elevate yourself in a way that's like meaningful and authentic. Mm. Did you ever take did you ever take any writing classes or anything like that during the period? No, I'm Just all a, I'm completely self-taught. Yeah. Good. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, one of the things I like to ask everybody is, um, you know, what three things do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started? Hmm. Hmm. Oh, it's so tricky. (laughs) Hmm. I wish, I mean, you know, I don't know that. I don't know. I, I, I guess I wish that I would have told myself, which I did eventually learn is that like, you have to advocate for yourself, um, as a, especially as a woman, I think, I think, unfortunately, women have a little bit of a skewed um, perception of how to operate in a business context because of the way that we're raised. Women are socialized to be, like, very aware of other people's emotions 
and to never um, impose upon other people. Mm. And men aren't really socialized in that way at all. And comedy is a very male-dominated industry, so that kind of behavior of never wanting to step on anyone's toes is not rewarded at all. And in mm. fact, it holds you way back. Right, right. So that's one. Mm-hmm. That's one. And I guess I wish I would tell myself, um, I think I would, I, I'm not sure. I have always really struggled with social anxiety. So I think I would maybe tell myself um, that um, I don't need to worry as much maybe. I'm not sure. It's something that I kind of was able to like work through. And now, you know, I'm like, I can talk to anyone mm-hmm. for like two minutes. I'm like totally drained, (laughs) (laughs) but I do remember feeling very anxious, especially in a a male dominated scene, you know, Mm. to, I was very nervous to, um, you know, uh, like say hi to people and make friends because it just didn't, it wasn't really a very open and welcoming environment. Right. So I wish I had been a little bit, but you know, but I am proud of myself. I actually am proud of myself for just sticking with it and mm-hmm. going, you know, even like going to a place where, you know, no one in the room and everybody else knows each other. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess I already did know that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing I would say is, oh yeah, don't get coffee with anyone who wants to write together. Oh. <laughs> that's a ploy. <laughs> Oh, that's that's one of the memes uh, the one of the comic friends I know does all the time. We should write together. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a ploy. It never goes the way you think. Yeah. You're like, we should write together. You should write your number down for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about the podcast. Oh, it's my new pride and joy. Lady Journey is something I started with my close friend Sarah Talamash who is an incredible comedian she has a a special available on her YouTube channel it's called voluptuous boy her writing is just incredible she has an she has her own very highly unique quirky comedic voice she's like a she's almost like a Maria Banford in a way she doesn't do characters and voices but in in the uniqueness of her style Mm -hmm. And so she and I decided, you know, we want to start a podcast together. We want it to be something that's, um, you know, we. this is one of the first times I'm really ever reaching out to an audience that I feel like I've resonated with. I think something I had to learn was, um, you know, my audience is not the same as the audience of many of my contemporaries. Mm-hmm. You know, I work with a lot of male comedians who have been really successful tapping into a highly male audience. And I thought for a long time that, maybe that was the right direction to go in. And now I realize that I need to connect with the people that um, my comedy resonates with. So we, we made it highly specialized for this audience. I'm calling it the brunch crowd. So ladies um, and guys, of course, but guys who go to brunch. Yeah. <laughs> Our podcast is about self-help. It's, a, it's kind of a comedic lifestyle podcast. So we do a little self-help. We talk about, you know, everyone's on a journey. I'm on a journey of trying to decorate my apartment and, you know, it's, it's got ups and downs. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, it's, it's very comedic, but it's also a little bit of, um, you know, advice and, and style, lifestyle, mm-hmm. culture. And, um, and we love it. And it's been really successful so far. So I would love it if um, people would check it out. Cause I think it's, 
It's hilarious. It's like, um, I'm calling it, it's like Martha Stewart, uh, but um, high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't really do any drugs or anything like that, but yeah. You know, that's the kind of the vibe that we're putting off. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened to the one episode where you talked about making the album, and I I thought it was pretty good. So, uh, oh, yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. And I'm just a regular guy, so, you know, I think I think it, uh, anybody would like it. So, yeah, I, I really like it. So, folks, check out the Lady Journey podcast. It's very easy to find. Just type in Lady Journey podcast, and you're good to go. Yes, and we also have a Lady Journey Companion blog now, if you like oh, to cool. read blogs. We're doing the show notes, and then we're also doing tons of other articles and fun stuff on there. Mm, that's a lot of work. You know, it is a lot of work, but it. I started, I'm at the point in my career where I'm outsourcing a little bit of stuff, mm. so I'm getting to focus on doing the, the stuff that I love, and it's a great it's a great experience. That's good. That's so. good. Cool. And uh, where can folks find you on the social medias? I'm on Instagram at Katie Hannigan forever. Um, and I would love it if people would follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Katie Hannigan. And those are my two main ones that I'm on. I'm on TikTok right now, but I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing on yeah. there. So <laughs> maybe in the future, but Instagram and Twitter. Twitter, okay. I'm mostly posting, you know, topical jokes. I'm, I post a lot of material on Twitter. Instagram is a little more curated for yeah. my yeah. podcast. You know, Instagram has become like the only thing that I really pay attention to anymore. I really, I, I like Instagram because there's just the pictures and a caption and it's so easy. It's so easy to That's flip and good. reels. Reels are fun. I like it. They are. I enjoy them, too. Yeah, the algorithm's kind of weird, though. I mean, it sends me some stuff that I have no idea why they sent it, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you, and like I said, the, the album is coming out here on the 18th, Feeling of Emptiness. I I liked it. I listened uh, twice through, and I on the way to Birmingham, on the way back to from Birmingham. So it was really... Uh, it was really good because it lasted uh, just about as long as a drive, and uh, it was just perfect. And I, I, I like the cliffhanger. I like the 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 closer. The ah! you, it it pissed me off and made me laugh at the same time. <laughs> so, folks, you got to well, we, buy the album if you want to know why I got pissed off. Yes, the video will be available soon. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's all I can say. That is all I can say. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to get to know you. Thank you. This was delightful. I really appreciate it.